Hey everyone, it's Drake. I'm really excited to put this episode out. I've been wanting Jason Winters on for so long and we finally got him on. We scheduled it uh, and it was an awesome episode. Jason has so much cool work that he's been doing um, as a sex therapist and he has so many insights into the work that he does with sex addiction, porn addiction, and so many other um, common issues that people come and seek therapy for. So if you have ever wanted to go get sex therapy or you're curious as to what it looked like, this is an episode for you. Jason has some really cool insights uh, and he's just an awesome person to talk to. Really, really informative. And before we get into today's episode, I just want to apologize. I'm sorry. We didn't publish every two weeks this month uh, and we took a break. I've been crazy busy trying to finish up my dissertation update for everyone that's at home and is cares at all. Uh, I am now a PhD candidate as is Kyle and so that means that we are trying to finish our dissertation and that requires a lot of time and effort so I am in the throes of it. I'm also starting a new job in January that I'm really excited about. Uh, So it's been a bit hectic for me but I do plan on getting back and publishing episodes at a more frequent clip uh, but we will be taking about a month or two break uh, for the rest of the year for 2021 we are done publishing episodes after this uh, and then we're going to restart revamp in 2022 so plan for us to put out a new episode for the new season sometime in february uh, and we'll have a whole slew of awesome researchers to come on and talk about their work so so definitely stay tuned for that if you have any people that you want me to interview or you have any topics that you want me to look out for i will be happy to respond to those shoot us a message on instagram facebook or twitter at brainbuzzpod or you can send us an email at brainbuzzpod at gmail.com i am very excited to have this episode come out and i hope you enjoy it have an amazing holidays where you wherever you are whatever you're doing and if you're listening after the holidays hope your new year is great and 2022 is awesome so cheers Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. I am your host, Drake, and today we have a, a special guest, a guy that I've been trying to get on for a very long time. It's finally worked out. The schedule is lined up. Dr. Jason Winters, he is a registered psychologist, the director of the West Coast Center for Sex Therapy, and a faculty member at the University of British Columbia in the Department of Psychology, where he teaches human sexuality. Jason provides treatment for what's been called sex or porn addiction, sexual interests that cause problems, sexual anxiety, sexual guilt and shame, erectile dysfunction. Premature ejaculation, performance anxiety, decreased interest in sex, difficulty with arousal and orgasm, genital pain. The list goes on and on. And he also does a lot more, um, you know, work with people with anxiety, low mood, and other other uh, emotions uh, regulation issues. Jason, wow, you've got so much to tell us. I'm excited to have you on. How are you doing today? <laughs> that is a hell of an intro. <laughs> Man, you make it sound like I do everything, which I maybe don't. <laughs> when you list it out, it really does like it does make it seem like you do a lot more. Jason, I have you on today because I, I, I know you're an amazing sex therapist. You we have never had a sex therapist on the, the episode. And I want to get people to have a perspective of what the work that you do. Before we get into that, I want to know what led you to being a sex therapist, because there's a lot of work, you know, within sexual sexual research. Uh, I, I'm familiar with sex, sex researchers, not too many sex therapists. Everybody has a different story. So what got you caught up with sex therapy and what made you want to do what you're doing now? 
Um, I've always had an interest in things that fall outside the boundary of what we'd consider quote unquote normal or typical. Um, and it's always just been a fascination of mine. Um, even growing up, uh, that was the case. And I think I probably got that from my dad. Uh, he was a bit that way himself. Um, but to be a little bit more concrete about this, when I was doing my undergraduate degree at UBC, I was kind of waffling. I was all over the place. Um, and I ended up in the biopsych program through sciences at UBC. Uh, and this is back in the 90s. Um, and as part of that, we were required to do a placement in third year, uh, not as an honors project, but just as part of our research designs and stats course. And I ended up in Bob Hare's psychopathy lab uh, because a friend of mine, Steve Barnes, who now teaches at UBC as well, um, he wanted to do a police placement there and I kind of just followed him. Uh, he didn't end up sticking around. He went to a different lab, uh, but it got me interested in forensic psychology. I got to piggyback on a project that a PhD student was doing um, where she was doing stress tests with federal offenders um, and then looking at the difference between psychopaths and non-psychopaths. And I got to spend a day hanging out at one of the medium security prisons in the valley, um, hanging out with these two guys. And one of them was the poster child for psychopaths. He'd been on CNN and CBC. He scored 40 out of 40 on the PCLR. And I got to sit and listen to this dude for two and a half hours, go on and on and on and on. And that got me really interested in psychology at that point. Um, and then the following year, I ended up doing a directed studies program um, through somebody I knew through work. He was an adjunct prof up at SFU, and he worked at the Forensic Psychiatric Clinic uh, on West Broadway. So he invited me to come do this project where I was basically looking through the data that they collected at the penile plethysmography lab, which is an ob supposedly objective measure of sexual preference. Um, and looking at the validity of the PPG in determining sexual preference in sex offenders, primarily um, people with pedophilic sexual preference. And this was for me like the holy grail. It was so interesting, like talk about, you know, being able to study things on the outside bounds of what society considers normal. It was absolutely fascinating. And as part of that, I had to set up the PPG lab and got to see everything that was done there, even though it had kind of been shelved at that point. But that really got me interested in sex offenders um, and pedophilia in particular. Uh, so I wrapped up that project and then I, I did pretty, I didn't do great in my undergrad. I think on my transcript, I had one of everything and I got to take biochem twice, which wasn't really particularly <laughs> fun. Um, so I didn't have a lot of prospects academically speaking at that point. And frankly, I was more interested in having fun with my friends. So I took a couple years off university. Um, and during that time, uh, I ended up getting a job. Actually, it started in my undergrad working at this campy gay owned and operated restaurant on Davie Street in the West End. Um, and the reason I'd done that was because I'd worked as a server previously and I'd noticed in straight joints that the women tended to make way more tips than the guys, no matter how hard the guys were. Um, and I'd been living in the West End and I was like, damn it, I, I'm going to go get a job at a gay owned and operated restaurant. I, I want to make tips as well, you know, yeah. at a competitive rate. So anyway, I got a job working at this place. Uh, and I think that ended up being a formative part of my education as well. I, I worked there for probably four or five years, maybe even a little bit longer. Um, and as a kid that came from a pretty normal vanilla family, uh, this was a total eye opener to me. I mean, at the time I had friends that obviously identified as non-heterosexual. I'd been part of the rave scene, which was very free in terms of gender and sexuality. Um, so that was kind of the introduction to this. But then once I started working there, 
um, they used to have, you know, BDSM munches on Wednesday nights and all the BDSM folk would come in. And then there was drag shows on Friday night and, and so on and so forth. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, again, this was kind of part of this path of my interest in sexuality and the things that, again, fall out of the norm of just like purely cis, hetero, typical. Mm. Um, so anyway, two years into that, I realized that I couldn't be doing this for the rest of my life. I needed to go back to school and do something. I considered film. I considered industrial design. Um, but one of the things that I did as part of trying to figure out what to do was I ended up contacting my old supervisor from UBC, Don Dutton, who'd signed off on this pedophilia project. And said, like, hey, listen, do you have any work for me? I'm kind of interested in maybe getting into grad school. Uh, And he brought me on uh, to be a research assistant, helping him out with his domestic violence research. And I thought this was pretty cool, forensic psychology, Mm -hmm. did that for a while. And at some point, he said, listen, why don't you just do a graduate degree with me? Come do your master's and PhD. I will supervise you. So I ended up going into UBC as a master's student on academic probation. Um, which is something I don't think the department does anymore. There's actually two of us in our cohort. And what it meant was that first year we had to do, I can't remember what our average had to be in our courses, but the fire was definitely under my ass to get motivated. And that ended up happening. I ended up getting really into it. So anyways, I'll try to go through this a little (laughs) bit more quickly. Um, Ended up studying domestic violence for a couple of years. The forensic department was a bit in disarray at that point. Uh, Don Dutton, my supervisor, had gone through this huge sexual harassment claim thing. It had cost him a few hundred thousand dollars in legal bills. He'd also just finished wrapping up doing expert testimony work in the O.J. Simpson trial. Um, So he ended up taking a year of stress leave. And then the next year, I think, was a sabbatical year for him. So it was we didn't have a supervisor. And my buddy and I in the lab, Rob Cliff, we just ran completely amok. Um, and we ended up with signing authority on the research grants. It was just bad news all around. <laughs> um, it was fun, and we actually managed to do some reasonably good research on domestic violence and sexual harassment, but my interest was always still getting back to doing work with sex offenders. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first two years of grad school, and I think it was during year two, um, I'd applied for a little research grant to do an fMRI functional imaging study of pedophilia, um, because I was really kind of curious in the origins of sexual preference, in particular atypical sexual preferences, uh, pedophilia. Um, So I had submitted for a little grant for that, and that was what I was planning on doing for my PhD work. And at that time, too, I ended up getting a job at Forensic Psychiatric doing the PPG testing, so the penile plethysmography sexual preference testing. Okay. Um, what does, what does that a, look like exactly, Jason? Like, just to, you're giving a lot of good insight to like the research that you had to do to become a sex therapist, which I think is great because a lot of people don't realize how much work you have to do to get into a PhD research-wise before you can start practicing. What does the PPG look like for for those that are curious? Okay, so <laughs> uh, this is like clockwork orange for boners um, is really <laughs> what it comes down to. So the way the PPG works, um, there's two rooms. There's a testing room and then there's the technician room. Um, And ideally, the technician isn't really watching what's going on in the testing room, just to give the person being assessed a bit of privacy. Um, So the person being assessed, they pull their pants down around their ankles and they put on this thing that looks like a little stretchy cock ring. And what it is, is a mercury and gallium ring that's attached to a couple of wire leads that then go out of that room through a little hole in the wall and then connect to a data box that then is connected to a laptop. And then the technician is running the testing through the laptop and collecting data from this little stretchy cock ring thing. Mm. Um, 
So when thinking about sexual preference, the presumption underlying this is people will get aroused when exposed to things that match their sexual preference. Um, and there's some data to back this up. There's a certain validity associated with this. Um, and we know that when a penile, uh, penis gets erect, not only does it change in length, but it also changes in circumference. So the idea behind the PPG is this stretchy cock ring is stretched during arousal when a guy starts to get an erection. And the interesting thing, I mean, it's kind of amazing the way that this works. This thing can detect changes as little as two to three millimeters in circumferential change. The way it works is it runs a low voltage current through the ring and then back through the lead to the data box. And of course, as the ring stretches, the resistance decreases. So it actually changes the voltage of the signal that's coming back. And then through some sort of algorithm, this is then converted into millimeters change. I mean, it's kind of fascinating that this yeah. even works. Yeah. So the way that the testing works is the guy puts it around the base of his penis. You, it's connected to the data box, the laptop. You're collecting the data. Well, at the same time, you're presenting different types of stimuli. So the way that I was doing this, most of the assessments I was doing was for pedophilic sexual preference, but I was also looking at exhibitionism, voyeurism, sexual sadism, and so on. The reason being is when looking at offenders and thinking about risk to reoffend, we know that a sexual preference that is atypical tends to increase risk, especially of combined with psychopathy and poor arousal regulation abilities. So this is really important information for the psychiatrist and the psychologist working for these guys. So my job was to present stimuli that varied in terms of the age of the person involved and then the amount of violence or coercion used. Mm. Now, of course, when doing these types of assessments, you can't present visual stimuli. Um, because then you run into ethical, obviously ethical and legal issues. So it was all audio vignettes um, in second person. So they ranged between like a minute 30 and two minutes long. Things like you're at your neighbor's party and his 10 year old daughter is wearing her bikini and she's looking really cute. And now you've noticed that she's jumped into the pool and she's come out and she's all wet and you start to notice that you're getting aroused. So that would be uh, looking at kind of prepubescent arousal um and non-coercive depending on how the scene then plays out and they tend to become more and more explicit the deeper you get into these various vignettes so the idea is these are randomly presented and you look at change in arousal based on change in penis circumference and then you can make inferences about preference based on that in combination with other data or information which can then help inform understanding about sexual preference Cool. Now, what it does require, though, is like as these guys get aroused, they also have to come back down to baseline again before you start the next trial. Otherwise, you you can't interpret the data, um, which leads to some funny stories I have about the research I did for my PhD. <laughs> so I ran this this lab in the basement of the forensic psychiatric clinic. No windows, dingy, 1970s. Um, and this was how I paid some of my bills or partly paid the bills through grad school. And it actually was one of the things that led, led to my PhD research, which then led into my interest in kind of sexuality and sexual behavior regulation in general. And then of course, into this whole idea of sex addiction and porn addiction. Yeah. And the, the, the really interesting thing about this data was, um, not so much the sexual preference data that was coming out of this, but the fact that so many guys were actually responding given the circumstances. So put yourself in one of these guys' shoes. You're already in trouble with the law. You've been convicted. You're on some sort of conditional release or conditional sentence or something along those lines. You show up at this clinic and meet this guy who's a total stranger who's telling you to take your pants off and sit in his chair and then is making you listen to porn ostensibly. 
you have this incentive to look typical because you know it's going to have consequences for your supervision and release and so on and so forth. So in other words, put this all together, there is no reason to believe that anybody would respond under these circumstances, especially given that these vignettes are audio and not visual. I mean, take a random sample of guys off the street, and if you play them audio stimuli of stuff that turns them on, some of them will get aroused, probably most of them won't. So with all of these things in consideration, um, when I eventually wrapped up the program and did the program evaluation, 83% of these guys were responding in a way that I could actually interpret the data, which to me seemed much more interesting than the sexual preferences themselves. Yeah. So there was a bit of data already available, and this went into some risk prediction about arousal regulation difficulties. And that really became my primary interest during my PhD. And I ended up leaving the lab with Don Dutton. We got in a bit of a kerfuffle um, and parted ways at that point. I was a bit of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I was an orphan for a couple of years until I found a couple other people to supervise me. Um, and my proposed project, this fMRI study of pedophiles, ended up getting turned down because it was just not feasible in the time I needed to wrap things up to finish my PhD. I was trying to recruit a community sample of exclusive pedophilic preference guys they would have been impossible. This is like a five tenure project. Yeah, so I ended up yeah. going back to the drawing board at that point. And I was thinking about all this work I was doing at the PPG lab and this difficulty with arousal regulation and how it might explain why it is that some people seem to get caught up in these patterns of behavior that either cause them problems, causes the people around them problems, and they seem unable to stop or at least find it very difficult to be able to, to stop this behavior. Um, so that led to my PhD research. And it led me down the rabbit hole of sex addiction and porn addiction. And Boris Gorzalka was one of my supervisors back then. Fantastic. He was so good as a supervisor. Um, and as I started to explore that literature, he said, be really careful. It's very controversial. It mm -hmm. hasn't been established that these are actually valid disorders at this point. Be really, really careful in the way that you interpret the data. And sure enough, when I started looking at the research on this, it was not very good. It was generally speaking suffering from problems with validity and correlation being assumed to be causation and all sorts of things, um, which led me to then do a couple projects to actually determine the validity of sex addiction as a diagnostic category or some sort of construct. And then that, of course, got me interested in just general sex therapy at that point. And during all of this, I mean, the forensic program kind of imploded at that point for a whole bunch of different reasons. And any opportunity for us to get registration, that door closed as well, because we were all intending to work as basically PhD students through federal corrections and get the right amount of hours that would count as an internship and then get limited registration. All of that shut down. So the forensic program became ostensibly an experimental program, and then it ended. So the idea of doing clinical work had been just axed at that point. Um, yeah. But nonetheless, I still had this interest in doing this. And I ended up doing these projects that really led me in the direction of just general sex therapy rather than just thinking about offenders. And then, of course, my interest in these problem sexual behaviors and why it is that some people seem to struggle and how we can account for that and then how we might want to think about that in the treatment context. So yeah. I think that's the Cole's notes. There's a lot of gaps in there, but again, I don't want to waste too much time telling the background story. Here. That that background story gave so much detail, though, Jason. I really do. You know, it's not boring by any means. It's a very interesting story, which most PhD students don't get that kind of interesting uh, amount of de data and research going on. So I, I want to touch on before we get into, you know, specifically like, you know, giving our, our listeners an idea of what sex therapy looks like for you, you know, as a, as a client and as you as the, the clinician, 
let's talk a little bit about porn addiction and sex addiction because you I, I, I think it's a really interesting and controversial, as you said, um, when diagnosing it. What do you think of it? Because I've, I've, I've heard very different perspectives as sex researchers and clinicians about, you know, the validity of whether or not you can actually have porn or sex addiction, or if it's just kind of like an impulse control problem or something like that. What do you, how do you define it? And what's the validity in your perspective? Okay, this is juicy. This is yeah, getting into the very, good very juicy. <laughs> um, so absolutely. I mean, it's been controversial basically since its inception. Um, and it's part of a broader con- controversy about behavioral addictions just in general. Um, and even that hasn't been sorted out at, that, at this point. I mean, we have what's called gambling addiction, and that seems to be accepted and presumed to be valid by the community of researchers and clinicians and so on. And yet we draw the line between that and like shopping addiction or sex addiction or work addiction or social media addiction. Um, And I still think there's probably a lot of work to be done there to determine whether or not these behavioral addictions are what we might consider addictions. And I think part of the problem, not necessarily within the academic domain, but within the public, is that the idea of addiction is being watered down so much at this point that it can be really used to describe anything somebody does that they feel bad about or causes them problems one way or another, and they don't want to stop or they feel like they can't stop. Um, So if we're going to broaden the definition of addiction to include that, and we absolutely need some empirical support for this, that opens the floodgates that anything can be an addiction. And frankly, this is just my opinion on this. I don't know necessarily how helpful it is to conceptualize that as addiction, because addiction at this point has so many things now connected to it, so many assumptions. Um, And I think we've just kind of lost the plot on this. Now, in terms of sex addiction and porn addiction, um, this is something that comes up all the time in my practice. It's one of the areas that I subspecialize in. And um, my thinking about it actually kicked off with that research that I did in my PhD. Um, And I tried to be as agnostic as possible as I approach this. Um, And my research really demonstrated, presuming it was good research, I hope it was good research, (laughs) really demonstrated that the validity of this diagnosis should not be just accepted prima facie. Like it's just, there there is some data there that suggests that we might be actually tapping into some sort of other underlying latent variable here that could better account for this. And we've just ended up labeling it sex addiction because it feels like that's what it is. Um, So on that note, the way I try to think about this or the way I conceptualize this is somebody shows up and they're describing some sort of behavior that's causing them a problem. Um, Now, it could be spending too much time watching porn jerking off, right? Um, Even that, though, can vary because if you've got somebody who's got beliefs that, you know, spending 20 minutes a day watching porn and jerking off, is something wrong and they feel guilty and ashamed about this, they will absolutely identify as a sex addict or a porn addict in this case. Um, And yet I've also met other people that'll spend four or five hours and they're staying up till one or two in the morning. And then of course they're exhausted the next day. They're not showing up for school or work and so on. Clearly there's a behavior regulation problem there. The problem I see though, is if we think about this as addiction, we miss the boat in terms of understanding the underlying driving factors, the motivating factors, what purpose or function that behavior serves. And once you start to scratch under the surface, you recognize that there's many, many pathways or pathways to this type of behavior. That's just with like porn problems. And then add in what people call sex addiction, which can include everything from 
uh, infidelity in affairs to being in a relationship and seeing sex workers when that clearly is outside of the rules, um, all sorts of things um, that could be considered problematic sexual behavior based on the definition of the way a person's either going about having a relationship or their moral framework or ethical framework. Um, I've also met people that will identify as sex addicts where any sort of non-normative sexual behavior for them feels like an addiction. And of course, it's a preference that they have and a desire that they have. And as they repeatedly do this thing, they start to see themselves as a sex addict or take on that label as a way to understand themselves. So for me, it's a bit of a one-two punch when I think about this and working with clients. It's what is the behavior first of all, and then what function does it serve? And then once you understand that, then you can start to scratch under the surface and figure out what it is that's driving that behavior or alternatively causing distress. Um, so just to give you some examples of this, um, we could split it kind of into two categories. There's the intrapersonal stuff and then there's the interpersonal or relational stuff. And it can be some combination of the two. Uh, so just to give you some prototypical examples of this, um, I meet many young guys that are struggling with social anxiety, struggling with depression, uh, ongoing states of loneliness and stress. And they may spend a lot of time online. And part of that is they get drawn into watching pornography and jerking off. And now they're spending hours and hours every day doing this as a means to escape the distress of what other, the, this ongoing thing that they haven't addressed directly or, or sought treatment for. That's really, really common. Um, people in states of boredom uh, will often turn to various means to capture their attention because for them, that state of boredom is a state of stress. So again, anything that's gonna capture their attention is gonna to tend to provide some immediately, uh, immediate relief. Uh, the other things that people tend to struggle with, video games, social media, going down YouTube rabbit holes and so on, because these are high, highly engaging stimuli, which are very, very effective in distracting people from the distress that they would experience otherwise. Um, you also see a lot of people where there's a moral incongruence. Um, I've worked with a lot of guys and women as well that come from very conservative religious backgrounds where the rules, the framework that they have learned through religion is that they are not to do or experience certain things. And I think about one poor guy in particular, he came from a very, very religious background and his presumption from his learnings uh, was that he wasn't have any sexual thoughts or fantasies about anybody except his wife. And he'd married very, very young and they really struggled with sex. Um, and because of that, you got this horny 20 year old it needs to go somewhere. So now he's starting to masturbate and he's now getting interested in watching porn and then he's having fantasies about friends of theirs. And so this guy was absolutely entangled in all of the shame and self-loathing and felt like he was a horrible person who was gonna go to hell and so on and so forth. And this is despite the fact that his parents and his wife were like, listen, it's okay to have sexual thoughts about other people, but he clung to this idea that this made him a bad person. So you can also see this with like OCD type stuff as well. Um, I mean, it presents in many, many different way, uh, ways. Relationship factors are always important if somebody's in a relationship. Um, people will seek sexual experiences outside the relationship and not, this is, this is an excuse. They still have done something harmful in the sense that they violated commitments they've made to the relationship. But if they're sexually unsatisfied or there's ongoing conflict or resentment and emotional distance in the relationship, um, if one partner's pulled away or pulled away even sexually. Um, in, in other words, they're left in this position where they feel like they need to go outside the relationship to be sexually satisfied. 
And again, the problem here, of course, is they're not addressing the underlying problem, which is something that's happening within the couple. It's not an excuse, of course. Um, so I see a lot of people like that too. Um, a lot of guys that come in uh, because their wives and partners have said, hey, listen, you're a porn addict. You need to go get some help. You're not having sex with me. And I know you're masturbating and watching porn all the time. And it feels really awful to me and you're cheating and so on and so forth. And then you start talking to the guy and the guy's like, yeah, I hate my wife. And you're like, well, dude, what are you doing? And that's the problem you need to be solving here. Right. Um, yeah. But that of course can lead to some really uncomfortable conversations with the partner yeah. rather than turning to this ineffective way of dealing with things, which then gets identified as addiction. So yeah. this is to say in a really, really roundabout way, there's the behavior, the function it serves, and then there's this multitude of underlying causes. And framing things simply as an addiction means you're missing the boat. It's a bit of a red herring. You're paying attention to the wrong stuff. And as a treating psychologist, if that's the case, you might be devoting all of these resources and effort in trying to change behavior, wherein the behavior is simply a symptom. And you're getting distracted by the symptom rather than actually trying to change what is underlying that that's driving the behavior in the first place. And I think that's the problem, the primary problem that the addictionologists tend to run into. They tend to just get focused on the behavior or they start to make assumptions that they know what it's about. And that takes them off track and it ends up being unhelpful for the client and perhaps even more damaging. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's an unreal way of explaining it. I really appreciate the way you approach that, Jason, because that kind of solidified to me. I was also kind of skeptical myself about porn addiction and, and sex addiction, but the way that you're describing it it really is the beliefs that are driving it less so the behavior that's actually occurring afterwards, right? So it's, if you masturbate 20 minutes a day, and you don't believe that's a problem, that's never going to be attributed as, as an addiction problem. I think the incongruence between couples for me, uh, was really where I kind of saw it. I think the first time that really got big in pop culture for me, at least was, I think it was Charlie Sheen was the the main porn addiction or sex addiction guy. I think that was when it really started getting talked about in pop culture, for me at least, being younger. Um, but there's been cases where people often attribute it as, oh, it's just an excuse after you've been caught cheating on your partner to then say, oh, I have sex addiction or porn addiction. I think that may have caused a little bit of, um, I don't know, made it less legitimate to a lot of people because they saw, oh, okay, this person got caught cheating, so now they're just going to say they're a sex addict. That's absolutely it. It's been really interesting culturally to see how things play out. This has been an area that I've been working in now almost 20 years. So I feel like I've been around long enough to see some pretty big shifts in terms of how as society we've responded to this. So sex addiction, my recollection of things, my impression of things is it kind of peaked in the early 2000s. Um, and that's when it was something that you saw in the news regularly. It was regularly on websites and the media. Um, and then we had a few of these really high profile cases. So Charlie Sheen, David Duchovny, Tiger Woods, and so on. Right. And all of them getting in trouble, cheating on their partners, and then coming out and saying, I have a sex addiction, and now I'm going to go do this $30,000 a week inpatient treatment for it. They spend, you know, like $100,000, $200,000 doing that. Then they come out afterwards, and they're apologetic, and they talk about how the treatment was so effective, and so on and so forth only probably to repeat the behavior again in the future, because frankly, these treatments just don't work. They're a racket. So I think you're absolutely right. I think the public became a little bit cynical about this. Mm -hmm. um, and in the last 10 years, I feel like we don't really hear about sex addiction much more in the media. I think probably part of that also was there's a group of psychologists um, in North America 
that have really pushed back against this idea. And I've tried to kind of keep under the radar, but I've been caught up in this at, at times as well, things that I've said in the media, and I've become the target of some of these like strong advocates for sex addiction and porn addiction. And they're absolutely ruthless, the things that they will do, because they have so much to lose if people start to recognize that these diagnoses aren't valid. But there's been this group of people, David Lay, Nikki Procy, a few others that have been really public about saying, listen, the science doesn't support these diagnoses. We see these diagnoses as extremely harmful to people and they cause more problems than they end up solving. And they've been relentless as well, ensuring that their voice is being heard. And part of, I think, what ended up supporting this point of view was that when the DSM-5 came out, sex addiction was actually considered as a potential thing to add as one of the mental disorders. And it was rejected. The reason being there simply wasn't enough science. There wasn't enough empirical data to support the validity of this diagnosis. And this for the advocates of sex and porn addiction was so enraging because it yeah. felt like a denial by the people who hold the power in terms of diagnosis of everything that they'd been advocating for. It got really, really ugly for a while um, and it polarized the community. Now, what we've seen since then is we've seen some alternative approaches to this type of difficulty. Um, Doug Braun Harvey and Michael Vigarito, they've done a ton of really good work and they've reconceptualized things. And as they've done so, I think a lot of people working in the domain of sex therapy have started to kind of see the light and they've come on board with this. And even within people practicing, there also has to be, there's been this rejection of this idea of sex and porn addiction and these more helpful approaches that seem to be much more effective. Um, so slowly over time, the sex addictionologists and porn addictionologists have kind of become quieter and quieter and quieter. Now, they did win a victory when in the recent version of the ICD, they included compulsive sexual um, behavior disorder, which is basically sex addiction in different clothes. But wow. the ICD did this more because of lobbying rather than because of science or data. So this was seen as a bit of a victory, but it was also the nail in the coffin for calling it an addiction. Now it was called a compulsive behavior rather than an addictive behavior. So you still see the remnants of that. Um, but I think as time continues on, I think we'll even see less and less of that. And what we see in terms of providers, it's like I said, it's become really, really polarized. And it's really the religious right that have picked up this idea of this type of behavioral problem. And now it's everywhere, right? You see it with porn with like fight the new drug and no fap and all of these other kind of groups that have close affiliations um, with more social conservative type of religious approaches to behavior. And understandably so. I mean, they see this as a huge problem within their communities. And it's nice to be able to externalize this and see this as like, oh, it's a diagnosis rather than people are just really, really struggling with what is expected of them in terms of the framework of beliefs. And, and I absolutely don't hold that against them. What I think I find a little bit frustrating is the fact that it's being framed as a clinical problem rather than it's being framed as a belief problem or yeah. principles problem and an incongruence there, when I think that would probably be much more fruitful for helping people rather than having them see this as an addiction or a compulsive behavior problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, it's it's really interesting just kind of hearing like all the how how these beliefs and how these cultural aspects really do play a part in you know how we diagnose or how we as individuals think about our sexuality in our lives. I'm curious how, to hear from a sex therapist why you think sex is so important to people. 
why do we uh, care so much or why do we why do we care about other people so much i guess <laughs> okay so there's a bit of a paradox in this in the sense that this is obviously being the focus of my clinical work like it really is important to me but the, the paradox lies in the fact that sex really isn't that important in the sense that it feels really really important to people when it's distressing or upsetting but yeah. I feel like I spend less time talking about sex with my clients than I spend time talking about other things. Mm -hmm. um, it's really interesting. When people show up, they will show up with some sort of sexual problem. But very often, it's the symptom of something else. Um, I joke with my colleagues. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, I'm primarily an anxiety therapist. And it's just that people are really, really anxious about sex because it's one of those things that people feel really anxious about, right? There's a lot mm -hmm. of shame and guilt and embarrassment and so on. It's kind of the final frontier in terms of acceptance of who we are people can accept many many things about themselves but they bump up against a barrier when it comes to sex so we're treating things like anxiety and guilt and shame and inhibition and avoid avoidance oh, man that's all i talk about um we're talking about those bread and butter things that clinical psychologists are talking to other clients about but it's being presented through a sexual problem now, having said that, though, some of the work that we do do is just purely sexual. Like we are really purely focusing on a sexual problem. Um, but even then, it's going to have connections to these other things that become our focus from time to time working with these clients as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's kind of what I've gathered as well from like the sex therapy. It really, you know, sex is the first word in that, but it really is therapy in the end of the day. That's very similar to a lot of, you know, there's underlying issues and beliefs that you have to address. And it's just the behavior in the end that's really the flag, the, the red flag that gets them in the office, I imagine, most of the time. That's exactly it. Let me tell you about like, the most common clients I see. I see a ton of guys struggling with erectile dysfunction. Um, and in, in part, it's because I'm a male therapist. Uh, and guys tend to be more comfortable talking about that uh, with a male therapist. Um, and then it's just it's such a common experience. So we just tend to see a lot of those guys anyway. Um, so guys will come in and we'll spend the first entire appointment talking about the fact that their dicks don't work in the way that they want their dicks to work, um, which is really what it comes down to. And they've probably seen their doctor to get their testosterone checked and they've tried Viagra. They've tried going off porn for 30 days to see if that helps. Um, and they've tried all of these various things, somehow thinking that they're going to affect the way that their dick works. But mm -hmm. the conversation very quickly will shift to like, listen, tell me about the context in which you're trying to have sex. Okay, so you're really anxious. You're afraid that she or he is going to be disappointed. And this feels like a huge hit to your ego if your dick isn't hard the entire time that you're trying to have sex, regardless of how anxious and worried you are about this. And you're not even really focusing on enjoying sex at this point. All you're doing is getting lost in thoughts about disappointment and frustration and fear that she's going to leave you or he's going to leave you or cheat on you and so on and so forth. It's like, how are you possibly enjoying this experience? And if you're not enjoying this experience, nothing wrong with your dick. Your dick is the metric, right? The <laughs> fact that you don't have an erection here is telling you that you're not comfortable. The context is wrong. So let's talk about all the reasons that you feel so anxious, all the reasons you feel so um, hung up on this idea of disappointing a partner. I never meet guys that struggle with erectile dysfunction that are self-focused, right? It's not the guys that are doing it because they want to have sex because it feels good for them. It's people pleasers. It's guys that are socially anxious. It's guys that are really worried about how their partner might react to this. And that's the stuff we end up talking about, not the things that their dick is doing or not doing, because that's just a distraction. That's the symptom again. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. I mean, it completely makes sense to me. And I think that, you know, it really is so much psychological and mental game when you're coming into it, right? Arousal in its own, the way that I like, you know, you become sexually aroused. It's not just a physical reaction, right? You have to be you have to be in that zone. You have to be focused on that. So it makes complete sense to me. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny. We tend to think about sex differently than we think about everything else, right? And to a certain extent, sex absolutely is unique. But in most ways, it's similar to everything else we do. And yet people impose upon it this type of thinking and these assumptions and expectations and beliefs that set them up for these experiences where it's no longer about enjoyment and pleasure it's about all of this other stuff that they're failing at or not doing, or they're not mm-hmm. responding in the way they assume they should and so on and so forth. It's torturous for people. Yeah. And a lot of that is connected to myths. And I feel like you know a huge proportion of the work that we do as sex therapists is challenging these social myths about like even things like love and connection and relation. I mean, we do a lot of relationship therapy too, even though we're sex therapists, but challenging people's presumptions and beliefs about relationship, but also challenging these myths about sex and how the body works and how they should feel and so on and so forth. Um, because I think, especially with this being that kind of final frontier of acceptance, people really do buy into these myths because there's nothing that is challenging those myths. They're not talking about it with friends. They're not learning about this. They're not being modeled this. I mean, look at sex ed curriculums, even in a place as progressive as Vancouver, comprehensive sex ed is not comprehensive sex ed. It's risk management. I mean, that's all it really truly is, right? So people try to go about having sex with these expectations and assumptions based on these myths. And then of course, things don't play out that way, or at least not all the time. And then they end up distressed about this. They end up upset about this. And now you've gone down this pathway where things are probably just going to snowball and get worse and worse. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I have a question for you, Jason, about, you know, the common issues. You, you said that, you know, erectile dysfunction is a very common one for men coming into your office. Are there different, uh, different things, different trends that you see among different age groups? So like younger, middle-aged, older clients, is there, are there certain trends that you see among those? Or is it mainly the same, same issues that are, people are coming across the board? That's a really good and interesting question. Um, I and and say, for men and women too. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously there's very, very unique differences for men and women. We can talk about that later, but how about for, for men sure. first? Yeah. Well, men and women and also what type of relationships they're in, whether they're in mm-hmm. same sex relationships or opposite sex partner relationships, different problems tend to show up. I think that actually has more of effect than the age a person is. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that though, Um, I do tend to see more younger guys that really struggle with porn use. And I think the problem there or the the explanatory factor, and this is just anecdotal here, is that I think a lot of these guys have grown up with porn, right? And access to internet porn. Um, And I think because of that, it's led to certain things that guys have really, really struggled with. And it goes back to this, like, here's this thing that's really pleasurable, enjoyable. It's not talked about. People don't learn how to regulate their behavior and think carefully about what they're doing. And, it becomes, I mean, it's the same thing with like a kid in video games. If nobody's helping a kid regulate his behavior with video games, there's kids that will play eight hours of video games a day to the point where academically and socially now they're struggling. So I do see that a little bit in younger guys, but I would say the problems cover all ages. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the other things that we tend to see a lot at our clinic is desire discrepancy cases. And it tends to be in opposite sex couples, but it can be in same sex couples as well. Um, this is a really common thing. And if you think about it on a more macro level, it makes sense. You get two people in a relationship together 
And they're going to be differing on almost all variables that are potentially shared variables within that relationship. So there is no such thing as a relationship where you have two people with the exact same sexual needs in terms of the frequency they have sex, how they have sex, where they have sex, the time at which they have sex, how they're affected by things in their life like stress and work and kids if they have kids and so on and so forth. So there are always going to be these differences that emerge. And sometimes couples will really struggle with that. And it's usually the partner that has higher wants or needs in the relationship will find this very, very difficult. And eventually the other partner starts to get frustrated and feels overwhelmed and suffocated, just leave me alone. So then that discrepancy actually grows even larger. So we see a ton of these cases. And I think this might actually be a bit of an existential issue as well, wherein the way that we define relationships generally speaking, is long-term committed monogamous relationships, although that's being challenged at this point as well. And in almost all long-term committed relationships, people, and especially one person who's the lower desire partner, will have less and less interest in having sex with their partner. It's just, there's no novelty. There's nothing new there. I mean, it'd be the same thing as eating at you know the same restaurant again and again and again for hundreds of times, and then wonder why you're not hungry to eat there anymore. Um, it's not quite that bleak, don't get me wrong. But this is a, a, another thing that tends to be really, really common in our practice, um, along with erectile difficulties. And then the other one is problem sexual behaviors, like the so-called porn and sex addiction. We see a lot of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I find that uh, I think it's really interesting, too, and I was going to bring it up. I'm glad you did. Uh, you know, talking about how we all, most of us have predominantly defined it, uh, you know, sexuality and our relationship as being monogamous contracts where we're with one partner forever. And the fact that people are kind of pushing those boundaries and kind of opening up to, to less monogamous relationships is great. Um, it's, I can see that being a huge barrier for a lot of people, though, that are that are maybe interested, like that discrepancy, you know, when you have someone that wants to have more sex than the person that doesn't want to have sex, there's like, you have to make some something work, right? And you have to kind of compromise in some way. And that seems like an option that I would see a lot of resistance, I, I'm sure, from clients. If, the, if one was trying to open it up, you know, like, let's get another partner in or let's explore something else. I'm sure that could, you, you might see that in your practice, but it could be pretty, pretty difficult for people to expand on. It absolutely is. Well, and I'll, I'll build on that in just a second here. What I find really interesting, though, and our sample is, of course, really biased. I mean, we're seeing people that are willing to talk about sex, seek help for sex, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. It's a very biased sample. Um, but having said that, though, like anecdotally, there's more and more people that we meet clinically that are exploring like different types of non-monogamy. I think there is much more of an appetite and openness for it now than there ever has been. And my prediction would be this is going to continue to be the case. Now, I, I think there's probably good arguments either way. I think people that do really support this idea of monogamy, it's just simpler, right? It's cleaner. It's easier. You don't have to negotiate rules. You don't have to deal with jealousy. No, you don't have to assume the risk that potentially could go along with that, um, especially people that have polytype relationships, right? Where you've got a primary partner and then maybe a secondary partner that you're absolutely dating. I don't know about you, man, but I find one relationship hard enough on its own. I don't need two or three. I mean, that sounds like another full-time job on top of everything else I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think people that come from that perspective, and keep in mind, I'm agnostic on this as well. Like, I really will support clients and whatever's going to be best for them. Um, but I think there's probably an argument in terms of just simplicity, stability, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, though, when it comes to non-monogamy, I mean, I think there's a really good argument for this as well. It's the only thing that people tend to limit their partner doing. 
right? Like nobody would ever say to your partner, like, no, you can't go hiking with so-and-so. You can only go hiking with me, right? Yeah. Or yeah. you can only go out for dinner with me. You're not allowed to go out for dinner with anybody else. Um, mm -hmm. Sex is reserved is this unique thing where it, in everybody's minds, poses greater risk, right? And understandably so, because sex fundamentally is a bit different than going out for dinner with somebody. But frankly, as long as you're in a relationship, you are always facing risk. That person could leave you at any moment for a whole bunch of different reasons. They could fall out of love with you. They could become frustrated with you to the point they don't want to be in a relationship with you. They could recognize that the fit isn't good and they need to seek a better fit. They might move across the country for a job opportunity. They might get hit by a bus, right? They could fall in love with somebody that they work with or go hiking with. I mean, there yeah. is always risk in relationships. But people don't tend to think about that. They think about my relationship is safe and you having sex with somebody else poses a risk, even though this is something that does not even involve me. This is your body that you're choosing what to do with that. And yet here I am telling you what you can and cannot do with your body. It's a form of control fundamentally, but it's usually an agreed upon form of control because we see this as risky. So it can be a tricky conversation because if you've got one person in a relationship, who's like, listen, I want to open up the relationship. Now, presuming that's not to resolve significant relationship issues, right? Yes. In other words, this is it's a band-aid solution. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to cause problems. But if the issue is mm -hmm. I really want to have sex and I want to be free to have sex with other people and the other person doesn't want that, it's like whose misery are you now prioritizing? Because now the person that wants to go outside the relationship, even though they have no intention of ever leaving their primary relationship, has to go without this thing that they want. And they can be miserable knowing that there's this opportunity that they are not able to take because their spouse or partner is saying, no, you can't do that. Now, the other person gets to feel better, right? So my partner gets to feel miserable so I can feel safe. But the flip side is I will feel miserable because I will always feel scared and anxious and at risk while you go do this thing that benefits you. So it ends up in this really tricky stalemate where somebody is probably going to get to feel miserable and this kind of control around that can be a hard thing to kind of navigate and i don't think people that double down on monogamy when they've got a partner who wants to be non-monogamous really realize that what they're doing is they're relieving themselves of misery by ensuring that their partner is miserable right, right. and it, that's yeah. a bit of a bitter pill to swallow for some people but again like keep in mind i'm agnostic on this yeah. i will as best as my can i can when i'm working with a couple i will support them and what's going to work for them mm -hmm. um and i have seen couples open their relationship successfully and i've seen other couples open their relationship for the wrong reasons and then it implodes and spectacularly so yeah, absolutely. I, and I think that that's the biggest, I think a lot of people carry that sentiment whenever people say, oh, people in an open relationship, it's never going to work. It's because of the reasons that are leading them to go and explore those options for sure. I mean, if it's sexual, sexual discrepancy exclusively, you know, it's just the sexual discrepancy. That's a very different story than, you know, you, you don't love your partner, you're, you know, you, you have trust issues, all the other things. It's just jumbled up and it's a mess. I'm curious. Absolutely. Yep. There's one, before you ask me that next question, there's one yeah. caveat to this as well. Um, the person who is choosing to go outside the relationship, assuming one is and one isn't, but this is actually true if both people choose to go outside the relationship and this is agreed upon, those people that choose to go outside the relationship also bear the responsibility of protecting the primary relationship, which means that they have to have the wherewithal, the wisdom the willingness and the motivation to recognize that they need to set limits on themselves. Because if they don't set those limits on themselves, they are now increasing the risk to the relationship. And that's mm -hmm. their responsibility to bear. 
that's not the other partner's responsibility. So there has to be a really clear conversation about that. Like who is responsible for ensuring that the primary relationship is safe despite the fact that either one or both of us is choosing to see other people. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure continued conversation throughout that as it as it evolves going forward, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, Jason, this has been great. I we we don't have all the time. I mean, we could talk for hours, I'm sure. I really <laughs> do appreciate all your insights on this. I, I, I just want to talk very briefly because I'm, I'm gonna let you go in a couple minutes. If someone is dealing with um sexual related issues, no matter what it is, and they're considering, um, you know, reaching out and doing therapy sometime soon, either with you or someone else that does sex therapy. What do you suggest they do in the time before, you know, if they're booking it or whatever, what should they do prior to getting into uh, a sex therapy session? What do you think are the main things that they should really focus on or think about when it comes to their sexual problems? Um, I would say there's not actually much pressure on them to do anything before they show up. Part of Mm -hmm. our job is to provide them that framework to start to talk about things without really necessarily any clear direction right at the beginning. People will come in distressed. They know what the problem is. They probably already have some good insights into what's leading to the problem. They're going to be a step ahead of us anyway. So it's not like they need to do a whole lot of front end loading. Mm -hmm. I think the hardest part for clients is just getting themselves through the door that first time. Um, and I, I mean, this is absolutely predictable. I think there's probably a lot of avoidance associated with that because they know they're going to talk to a complete and total stranger about something that is so private and so personal that they normally wouldn't talk to other people about, unless they're one of those people that's super open and confident talking about sex. So I would say the hardest part for them, rather than get tangled up in figuring out what they need to do beforehand, is to encourage themselves, to try to find that motivation of like, things can be better. What's the carrot dangling at the end? What can I do to ensure that I get myself through that door, given that this thing's a problem and I really want some help for it? Um, And then part of our job is just to put people at ease. Like they show up, making them feel like it is going to be a place that they're gonna be safe enough to start to talk about this stuff. (laughs) And the funny thing is, client, it's kind of a bimodal distribution. You have some clients who, before you've even gone through the consent form with them, they immediately start downloading absolutely everything. And you can tell that there's been this buildup of anxiety. They've got themselves through the door and now like the floodgates open and they just want to rip off the bandaid and tell you everything that's going on. And there's other clients who will be much more reserved and you know that they're titrating the information that they're giving you. Um, And you usually will pick this up pretty quickly and you know there's going to be more coming and you you take the kind of slow and easy approach and you work at their pace and eventually they'll get to that that stage where they start to feel comfortable opening up a little bit more. And this is true about therapy in general. I mean, this happens to psychologists regardless of what type of clients you work with where you've been seeing somebody for six or eight appointments and then all of a sudden they drop this thing that Mm -hmm. you're like, oh, Okay, yeah. so now everything makes sense. Or mm-hmm. I, I can see how this, this information really helps us in terms of understanding. And now the path changes a little bit in terms of how we want to address this. So this is all to say, I want clients to be able to come in not feeling pressure one way or another about how they need to show up, right? The, I, the key thing for me is to get yourself through the door. We will sort out the rest after that, and I will follow your lead on this. I'm not going to back you into a corner to make you talk about things that you're not ready to talk about and so on and so forth. I will follow you on this, and I will, as best as I can, ask the questions to get us talking about the right stuff 
but I'm not going to take a sledgehammer to you and insist that we drag out all of this really difficult stuff to talk about because I think that's really unreasonable yeah. uh, to do so. So yeah, clients don't need any preparation. Great. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and so I do want to do, uh, give me three more minutes, four more minutes. Yeah, sure. Last, last, set, last question. We talked a lot about what uh, your male clients, clients come in to do. I, we have a lot of female listeners. So I want to know what females are coming into sex therapy for. What's the main things that you've seen and what are the main issues that they're kind of dealing with that you guys help with? Okay. So on that note, I don't think it'll be a surprise to your listeners that because I'm male, I don't mm -hmm. tend to see a lot of female clients. They tend mm -hmm. to prefer to work with female therapists and understandably yeah. so. I completely get that. But I do see female clients. Um, and interestingly, some of them will choose to work with me specifically because I am male. And that can be for a whole bunch of different reasons. Some women feel more comfortable talking with a male. They feel like they get along with men better, so it's easier to talk to a male therapist. Um, interestingly, I've had many female clients that have been through some sort of sexual trauma in the past at the hands of some sort of male perpetrator. And part of what they're looking for is to repair the way that they feel about men. And they believe that this is going to be a valuable experience in the sense that they're going to a place that's presumably safe for them to talk about this stuff. And through our work together and the relationship that we develop, they will learn to be able to trust men a little bit more. Now, that's a hard thing to do. I mean, I have a lot of respect. I'm impressed by women that make that decision because I know they're putting themselves in the crosshairs in terms of their own anxiety and the effects of that past trauma. Um, but I do see some clients like that. Um, the other female clients I see, uh, there's kind of two other groups primarily. There are some that actually struggle with these problem sexual behaviors as well. They tend to show up less um, because I think it causes less distress, frankly. Um, and interestingly, a lot of the women that have come to see me for problem sexual behaviors, um, and I, I don't pressure them one way or another, they may come to a point where they're like, you know what, I'm happy with what I'm doing. I don't want to change my behavior. And through our discussion, there's this clarity of like, I don't actually want to change. I kind of like what I got here. Um, that's entirely fine. We'll talk about the potential consequences of that. I'm not going to push them to change in that way. That might be what they take from this. Um, but I see other women, of course, that will want to change. Uh, the other women that I tend to see are in relationships where there's desire discrepancy, but it doesn't follow the typical gender stereotypes where you've got the male partner with the higher drive or higher desire and the female partner with less. And usually the way that they show up is the husband or male partner will be sent to see me, not because he wants to be there, because she's frustrated with the fact that he doesn't want to have sex with her and yeah. you're the problem, you go fix this. And she books the appointment, he shows up, he's sheepish. And my job, and I don't try to pressure guys into this, is like to try to find some motivation within this guy to be there because I don't want to be providing this to him if he's only doing it to appease his cranky partner who's not having sex as she might want, as much as she might want to have. Now, inevitably what happens is after the first appointment, I'm like, hey, listen, I think we need your partner here. I don't think we can just do this on our own. Um, we need to find out what's going on between the two of you here and negotiate something that's going to work for the both of you. So I see quite a few of those couples where you have the higher desire, higher drive female partner and the lower drive or desire male partner. Um, and other than that, female partners uh, or female clients, the other clinicians at our, our clinic tend to see, uh, we see a lot of low desire, uh, arousal difficulties, sexual pain, so pain with intercourse, which is actually surprisingly common. Those things actually tend to cluster together as well. Um, so we see a lot of those type of clients as well. And they often come in believing it's some sort of physiological problem or there's some sort of physiological element to it. 
But much like the erectile dysfunction guys, it's usually a context problem or beliefs or assumptions or expectations problem where these poor women are trying to have sex with their partners under circumstances that they struggle with arousal. And because they struggle with arousal, they're probably going to struggle with orgasm and they're going to struggle with pain because the body hasn't adapted to be able to take in something that's um, not going to cause pain in the process. Uh, so we see a ton of those type of clients as well. Um, we also see like, you know, sexual anxiety. People have anxious thoughts about their bodies, body self-esteem type of issues. Those tend to come up quite a bit as well. So it, it really kind of depends on who the clinician is, what their expertise is, are, and then also the gender and the sex of the clinician as well. And sure. it kind of filters that way. One yeah. other thing I guess that might be worth noting as well is I see a disproportionate amount of men that identify as gay. Uh, they mm -hmm. make up a huge proportion of my uh, client roster. So compared to just the prevalence or the proportion in the, the general population. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's in part because I think gay men have more of a willingness to seek help, whereas straight guys, at least historically, have been really reluctant to get help. Although I'm seeing more and more straight guys that are willing to get help. And I think over by clinical practice, I think the proportion of gay identifying men has probably shrunk in relation to heterosexual identifying men. And maybe it is more of that willingness. So yeah. that's just an interesting observation that I've had over the years as well. Absolutely. No, it's it's really good, like really amazing information and so much to take from this episode, Jason. Thank you so much for coming on. This is this is really a pleasure. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. I wish we had more time. Maybe we'll do it again at some point. Honestly, I'm yes. sure, as you notice, once you get me talking, I'm really hard to shut up. I, yeah. There's, yeah, there's lots. I think a lot of people can take from this, you know, there are a lot of tr problems that you can be having within your, your relationship. Sexuality might be a, f a red flag or a behavior that, that you might be seeing an issue in, but it might not be the end all and be all of what's going on, right? There might be some other things that need to be addressed. And I think that's really, really informative. There's lots to talk about. And, you know, I think I, I think I, for me, I'd be more comfortable going to see a sex therapist after this episode. So I appreciate your <laughs> okay, here. We're not that scary. Some people have this idea <laughs> yeah. that like sex therapists are going to touch you and like, oh, you're going to be doing this talking about your sex life the entire time. We're just, we're therapists. We're psychologists. We're counselors that just work in the domain yeah. um, where there tends to be a lot of distress and upset. Uh, it's really not a lot different than seeing any other therapist for some sort of other problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Jason. This was so much fun. And, uh, and we will be having you on again for sure. We have to have you back on. Thank you so much. Okay, great.